Hello dreamers and welcome to episode 243. Before we get started, I have a couple of notes about the show. This is an independent ad-free podcast, which means I depend on you, the listeners, to help keep it chugging along and there are a number of ways that you can help. You can leave a nice rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I got a nice one posted on social media from Canada a couple weeks ago, but I don't look too often because sometimes they make me sad. You can follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can recommend the show to whoever you think might need something sleep-inducing yet mildly interesting to listen to. And if you have an extra dollar or two each month, you can subscribe to the show's Patreon where starting at $1 a month, you can gain access to dozens of full-length episodes you won't hear anywhere else. And no matter how bad things get, it's always going to start at a dollar. I made that promise in the beginning, and that's not going to change. Because things are always going to get better, and I want you to stick with me through thick and thin. And if a subscription isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation to the treat jar using PayPal with the email californiapod at gmail.com. This week, I'd like to thank Cindy A., Seidel B., Karen F., Vivian T., Crystal, Joy N., Anne B., Lydia N., somebody from the Lockridge group, I don't know who you are, but thank you, Nanu W., Kathy H., Jan D., Ryan S., Tal S and Mindy E for either joining, raising your pledge, going annual, or coming back. November subscribers will be thanked in the next episode. All right, let's get this party started. So the interesting thing about this case is that it began in Oregon, but unbeknownst to some involved, it ended in California. Wairika, California, to be exact, Siskiyou County, to be slightly less exact, and to be even more vague, this all goes down in the very dense and woodsy area where the border that divides Oregon and California isn't very obvious. It's remote, it's out of the way, and really you can't even access it from the California side. You have to take the 5 freeway into Oregon drive up to Medford, and then come back down through the mountain roads and passes. I hadn't even heard of Wairika until its most infamous former resident, Jody Arias, went on trial for murdering her ex-boyfriend, Travis Alexander, all the way down in Mesa, Arizona. Many of you may remember the case that happened in 2008, and a detail you might recall is the 2,800 mile or 4,500 kilometer drive that Arias made to carry out said murder, which is a drive that originated in Wairika. A fun fact about the small town is that it is a palindrome of the word bakery without the B. The Wairika bakery, spelled and pronounced the same and correctly backwards and forwards, opened in 1865 allegedly by a Civil War deserter named Frederick Dang. It is a town with a rich California gold rush history. A mule train packer, which is a thing that pretty much exactly is as the job title says, a person who brings an organized string of mules connected together one right after another, each of which are carrying packs of supplies, 
named Abraham Thompson discovered gold while he was along the Siskiyou Trail, heading into Northern California in 1851, less than a year since the state was founded. Because of the new gold discovery, this caused the gold rush to expand into California. Within weeks, miners were coming to the area in droves. The new little town was given a couple of different names until they settled on Wairika, a Native American word meaning North Mountain or White Mountain, which is a reference to Mount Shasta. However, jack-of-all-trades and all-around funny guy Mark Twain told a different story in his autobiography according to wairika.ca.us. Bret Hart, a frenemy and foe of Twain's not-retired wrestling legend Bret Hart, arrived in California in the 50s, 1850s. He was 23 or 24 years old, had wandered up into the surface diggings of the camp at Wairika, a place which had acquired its mysterious names when its first days, it much needed a name, through an accident. There was a bake shop with a canvas sign which had not yet been put up, but had been painted and stretched and dried in such a way that the word bakery, all but the B, showed through and was reversed. A stranger read it wrong in first, Wairika, and supposed that that was the name of the camp. The campers were satisfied with it and adopted it. The town was incorporated officially on April 21st, 1857. Another interesting fact, back in November of 1941, there was actually a proposed succession for a large section of land that straddled the Oregon-California border to become a brand new state that they were going to call Jefferson. And Wairika, if the succession had gone through, would have been the state capital. I don't know why the succession never happened. Perhaps it had something to do with the fact that Pearl Harbor was attacked the following month on December 7th. Maybe the state succession thing was put on the back burner for the time being and was never really revisited. And then a few years later in 1959, Hawaii and Alaska joined up, rounding off the United States to 50, and everyone decided that that was good enough and left it at that. I really have no idea, but I do know that writing and talking about history is not my jam. So enough of that. Let's get back on track. We are six minutes in and I haven't even begun to tell the story yet. The locals in the area where this story takes place call the surrounding wilderness that crosses state lines the Applegate. A river runs through it with the same name, the Applegate River. Just before Thanksgiving in 2012, a young couple chose this very isolated area for a spontaneous camping excursion. And yes, it is quite an unseasonable time of year to go camping in Northern California slash Southern Oregon with the cold weather and the seemingly nonstop rain. On Monday, November 19, 2012, authorities in Medford, Oregon received a call from wife and mother Patricia McCollum, who was reporting her husband, Chris, missing. She explained that they had driven about an hour or so south of Medford to a campsite along the Applegate River the previous Friday, November 16th. She left him there that evening with all of the supplies that he would need for the weekend, including a large eight-person tent, camping supplies, food, water, his phone, his wallet, 
and a gun, which belonged to her, just in case. She came back the next day, Saturday the 17th, and she found nothing at the campsite. All the supplies and gear were gone, and so was Chris. That same day that she called to report him missing, Trisha contacted her father-in-law, Chris's father, Mike, to break the news to him as well. That weekend, Chris was turning 34. His birthday fell on that Saturday, the 17th. Normally, Chris and Mike would have spoken on his birthday, but because he was out in the wilderness, Mike figured his son was having a good time and possibly didn't have good phone connection. Being in the late fall, the weather in the northeastern region of the United States is cold and rainy, which isn't particularly an ideal time of year to go camping in the wilderness. A cabin would work. A hotel would be even better. But camping was one of Chris's favorite things to do. He loved the outdoors. His father took him camping often while he was growing up. So to him, Mike, it wasn't unusual for his son to want to do that. It wasn't a thing that particularly stood out to him as unusual. That is what Chris wanted to do with his wife to celebrate his birthday. Chris was born in the city of Los Alamitos, California, which is very close to where I was born and raised. And like myself, Chris was also the child of a Vietnamese mother and a white father. However, their marriage was volatile, and while Chris was still crawling around in diapers, they divorced. He remained close with his dad, and aside from all the outdoorsy stuff, Chris was also quite a little tough guy growing up, winning countless medals and trophies competing in martial arts. In 2008, Chris met Patricia. Trisha for short. They went on a date, and after that, Chris felt like she was the one for him, even telling his dad that for him, it was love at first sight. And Mike liked Patricia. He liked how happy she made Chris, thinking that he had finally met somebody that he wanted to settle down with. And it was only 10 months after they met in 2009 that Chris and Trisha got married and moved from Southern California up to Medford, Oregon, where Trisha was originally from. Also in 2009, they welcomed a baby girl they named Cora, Chris's first child, Trisha's second. She had a son back in 2003 when she was 17 years old from a previous relationship, a son she named Eric. So by 2012, Cora was three and Eric was nine. Chris was not only over the moon being a dad, he also very much embraced his role as stepdad to Eric, raising him as if he were his own. Chris, coming from a broken home himself, finally had what he always wanted, a solid, stable family. Trisha and Chris did have a hard time making ends meet. They struggled, so in order to support his family, Chris worked two jobs, one at a call center during the day, and at night he drove a taxi. There were times when they were so strapped that Chris would even resort to selling his own blood. He was a dedicated husband and father and clearly would do just about anything to make sure that they were taken care of. So for Chris to be gone from the campsite without any explanation was troubling right from the start. Trisha had told him that she was coming back for him first thing in the morning, right at dawn. There was no reason for him to have gone anywhere on his own, and for her to find him and everything gone was ominous. 
Trisha provided authorities with the exact location of where they set up camp the Friday before. So the next day, on Tuesday, November 20th, authorities with the Oregon Search and Rescue Unit made the hour drive to the campsite in order to begin the search for Chris. They began near a waterfall that Trisha had said was nearby. They arrived at the general area and one of the searchers began walking along a trail that ran alongside the Applegate River, and soon he began to hear the sound of a waterfall, so he kept moving in that direction. Before long, he was able to see the waterfall, and then he saw something off to the side and down an embankment. He wasn't sure what it was at first, but it was the color of the tent that Trisha had described that they pitched at the campsite when they had arrived. The searcher almost walked right by it, since it was off the trail so far, down the embankment and obscured by trees and brush, and because the weather was not ideal for visitors or campers, it could have been months, possibly well into the springtime the following year, before anyone ever saw it, so it was a lucky find. The way that the tent was situated, it was not going to be easy to get down the embankment to retrieve it, so the searcher went back for help and equipment in order to rappel down there to take a closer look. When that searcher got down to the tent, he tried to move it slightly, but he immediately felt that there was something very heavy and sizable wrapped inside of it. The officer described it as being like dead weight. He retrieved a pocket knife that he had with him and made a small slice into the side of the tent to see if he could get an idea of what was in there. He immediately saw some blood and a couple of spent bullet casings. He wasn't able to tell what was inside, if Chris was inside, but whatever the case was, it was obvious something nefarious was going on here. Now that this was a potential crime scene, the officer decided to leave everything alone. He climbed back up the embankment and reported his findings to his colleagues. They were going to need more help, not only to collect evidence, but to also bring the tent back up and whatever it was that was inside of it. However, it was not going to be the Oregon authorities taking care of this crime scene, because the tent was actually found a couple of miles over the California border, out of Oregon, into Siskiyou County. So they contacted their counterparts in California and filled them in on what was going on. If Chris was wrapped up inside that tent, then the case would be in the hands of the Siskiyou County Sheriff's. They were made aware of the situation in the Applegate in the late morning of November 20th, four days after Trisha and Chris had first gone camping. The headquarters of the Siskiyou County Sheriff's Department is located in their county seat of Wairika. Two detectives were assigned to the case. Because there was a strong possibility that there was a body inside the tent and it was likely their missing person, Chris McCallum, California detectives technically needed a search warrant in order to take a look at what was inside of that tent. That, along with the fact that it was going to take more than two hours to make the drive into Oregon through Medford and then back down towards the campsite, it was going to be several hours before they were going to be able to get there and get that tent out of the embankment. Meanwhile, while California investigators were busy doing that, Medford investigators paid Trisha a visit at her house in order to speak to her about what exactly happened up at that campsite. 
Trisha had stated that she and her husband went camping on Friday. And initially, she didn't tell them that her stepsister, Amber Lubers, had joined them. But she would mention that a little bit later on. And to be honest, dreamers, those law enforcement officers were suspicious of the time of year that this supposed birthday camping trip took place. But I would have been way more suspicious of the fact that they took Trisha's stepsister with them. Trisha had dropped off her two children with her mother so she could watch them while they all went camping. It was for his birthday, and I mean to me, this would have appeared to have been more of a thing for Chris and his birthday, a little getaway with his wife without the kids. And they were bringing alcohol with them. They were going to stay for the whole weekend. I would have definitely been like, why is the third wheel coming along on a husband, wife, no kids getaway? I don't know if that raised the detective's eyebrows, but mine would have been. But anyway, they didn't really question why Amber went along with them, but they did point out that it was not the best time of year to go camping. Trisha acknowledged that it was, but said that that's what Chris wanted to do. Trisha said that when they first got there early in the day, they were having a really good time. They pitched their extra large tent. They ate sandwiches. They had drinks. And even though it was pretty damp out there, they managed to get a good campfire going. As it got into the late afternoon, the rain started coming down, so they went inside the tent. But Trisha and Amber began complaining that they were too cold and that they wanted to go home. Chris insisted on staying. This was his birthday trip and he wanted to ride it out. So Trisha and Amber decided to leave and Trisha told Chris that she would come back for him first thing in the morning and either pick him up or spend the rest of the weekend with him. Along with all the camping gear and provisions, she also told authorities that he had his wallet, his phone, and she also left her handgun with him for protection. She then said that she and Amber left to go back to her house. Along the way, she said they picked up dinner at Jack in the Box. They arrived at home. They put on the movie 27 Dresses. They ate dinner and they went to bed. Trisha said she got up the next morning at 5 a.m. She got ready and drove back out to the campsite only to find everything and Chris gone. Trisha made the decision to not call the police right away. Her reasoning for that was that there were times in the past when Chris would become upset or angry about something and it would cause him to want to leave for a few days at a time. But he always came back. So she wasn't alarmed when she found that he was gone. She said she waited for him to come home that weekend, but when he hadn't arrived by Monday, she decided to contact police. During this initial interview with Trisha, they decided to not reveal to her the fact that they had found the tent and that California authorities were processing it. They didn't know what was inside yet, and they wanted to wait and find out before they said anything to her. After getting Trisha's statement, they next went to speak to Amber, who resided pretty close to her, also in Medford. When authorities went to Amber's house to get her statement, it pretty much matched Trisha's word for word. She indicated that there wasn't a problem with them leaving, that Trisha and Chris did not argue or fight about them ditching the campsite early. Even though Trisha stated that it was possible that Chris took off because he was upset, 
And the only thing that I could imagine him being upset about at that point was not only the fact that his wife dragged her stepsister along on their little weekend getaway, but that she was going to go home early, leaving him there alone, which I think he had every right to be angry about, really. So anyway, Amber and Trisha's stories lined up. It was going to be up to the investigators to try and figure out what went on at that campsite after Trisha and Amber left, and more importantly, what happened to Chris. There was evidence at the campsite itself that investigators found and collected, including one ski glove, some tent poles that had been tossed into the fire pit but not burned. They found the bags that the tent poles and stakes came in, and a bunch of empty shell casings. And while some of those shell casings had clearly been exposed to the elements for quite some time, there were some fresh ones. Those shell casings were determined to be the same caliber as the ones found with the tent. And all of those matched the caliber of the gun that Trisha said that she left with Chris for protection. Other than those items, there was very little left of anything useful in the way of evidence because it had pretty much been raining nonstop since the evening the three of them went out there to go camping. Important things that would have been collected by police, such as tire track evidence or shoe prints. The California authorities finally arrived at the location where the Oregon search and rescue officers found the tent, which was about 40 feet or 12 meters down the embankment. And to give you an idea of how remote the location was where they found Chris, in all the times that investigators drove out to that spot, which was several times throughout the duration of their case, they never once passed any other vehicles and they never saw another living soul anywhere else except other investigators and vehicles of other law enforcement officers working at the scene. Nobody was going in and out of that area. It was quite an isolated and lonely place to be left alone, especially to celebrate your birthday. It was possible that Chris had encountered other people and it was those other people who did something to him, but it was beginning to look less and less likely that he ran into anybody. That first afternoon when California investigators were processing the crime scene, it started to get dark before they had a chance to bring that tent up out of the embankment. So they were going to have to wait until the following day, Wednesday, November 21st, Thanksgiving Eve, to do it. That tent, and whatever or whomever was in it, was going to have to spend one more cold night out there in the wilderness. The next day, authorities using rappelling ropes were able to get down to the tent and bring it and its contents out of the embankment. It was decided that because of the weather, that the best thing to do was to bring the tent as it was as a whole over to the medical examiner's office and have the medical examiner there while they untie the tent to reveal what is inside, which is a thing that almost never happens. It is very unusual for the medical examiner to be the one to process a tent, but they weren't 100% sure what was inside. However, if a body was in there, the best course of action would be for the medical examiner to be present for the unrolling of the tent. And it would be on Thanksgiving Day of 2012 
that Chris McCollum was no longer considered a missing person. It was indeed his body rolled up inside his tent. As the tent was being carefully unrolled to reveal its contents, 40 caliber bullet casings were dropping out of it one by one. Even a number of spent bullets were discovered inside the tent as well. Within the tent was a blue sleeping bag, which belonged to Chris. And inside that sleeping bag, finally, they found Chris himself. And both of which, the sleeping bag and Chris, were riddled with bullet holes. In all, Chris had been shot nine times, and three of those gunshot wounds were considered to be fatal. And from what is known about the gun that Trisha left with him, it appeared that he was shot with that very gun, as it was a 40 caliber handgun, and it was not recovered at the scene. What's more, it appeared that Chris was fast asleep inside the sleeping bag when those gunshots were delivered. It was brutal and it was cold. Someone had shot Chris nine times while he slept and then tossed him down an embankment. Whoever murdered Chris really wanted to make sure that this man was dead and they hoped that he would never be found. Something about the whole thing felt very intimate and personal. While California investigators were busy working with Chris's body and putting together what may have happened at that campsite, their counterparts in Medford were continuing to investigate his murder on their end to see how and why this may have happened to begin with. After all, Chris and his wife and children were residents of their city. So they wanted an answer to the question, who would want this hardworking, loving father and husband dead? One of the first things Medford investigators wanted to explore was a possibility that Chris's murder was linked to that of the murder of another taxi driver in their jurisdiction just a month earlier in October. A gentleman by the name of Huey Hewson had been shot multiple times and his body was left in a field on the outskirts of Medford. They wondered if they had a killer preying on taxi drivers. The detective assigned to that case began comparing the two murders to see if there were any connections, as they had yet to make an arrest in Huey's case when Chris McCollum turned up dead too. Huey was working one evening in downtown Medford when he picked up a person hailing a taxi near a local restaurant. Sometime later on that evening, the person working the taxicab company's dispatch tried to radio Huey, but she received no answer. After several attempts to get a hold of him, the dispatcher finally called police and reported him missing. There was no reason that Huey should have been away from his taxi for that long. The cab was found early the next morning in an empty parking lot, and there was no sign of Huey, but inside the cab, it was covered in blood. And it was just a short time later that same morning when Huey himself was found out in that field. Based on the evidence, it was determined that Huey was shot by the person sitting in the cab with him while he was still in the driver's seat. Tire tracks in the field showed that the taxi had made a sudden and sharp turn and traveled somewhat uncontrollably for about 40 yards until it finally came to a stop. Huey was pulled out of the cab and left in the field. The killer then robbed what money Huey had on him, 
He drove the bloodied cab back towards downtown and parked it in a parking lot. The only evidence they had in Huey's case at the time that Chris was discovered shot to death was some grainy video of Huey picking up a white male from that local restaurant. Both Chris and Huey being cab drivers who worked nights weren't the only coincidences. They were both found in isolated areas and it just so happened that they were both shot to death on their birthdays. And just like Chris, Huey was also married with children. He was very well liked. Lots of people knew him and were deeply saddened by his violent death. Huey was the type of cab driver that would be willing to help out a person who needed a ride but was short on cash, and then he wouldn't charge them any fare. Ultimately, it was found that those coincidences between the two cases were just that, coincidences. There was nothing that connected the two killings, nothing to indicate that one person was responsible for both of these men's death. And by the way, dreamers, the 10th anniversary of Huey Houston's murder just passed this October 21st, 2022, and his case is still unsolved. So getting back to Chris, the medical examiner did make the official ruling awful news to receive on Thanksgiving Day. His death was ruled a homicide. Detectives went to Patricia's home again, this time to inform her of the news that her husband was in fact murdered. After that, she had to call up Mike, Chris's dad, to let him know. And based on Trisha's reaction, it seemed as if she was saddened and upset to learn Chris's fate. She cried over the phone as she spoke to his dad. But now that Chris was no longer a missing person, but rather a homicide victim, the first place investigators needed to go digging was with the last people known to see Chris alive his wife, and his wife's stepsister. Investigators went to both of their homes pretty much simultaneously and asked for permission to search both places, which they both obliged, saving everyone the trouble of having to obtain search warrants. The women likely knew that search warrants were inevitable, as there was probable cause, and really, they would likely not be doing themselves any favors if they refused to let officers in and force them to go get warrants. One of the first things that stood out about Trisha was that she was a slob. Now, in her defense, and without jumping to any conclusions yet, she is a woman whose husband, who had been missing for several days, she has two children, including one toddler to take care of, and she just got word that her husband was discovered murdered. Putting myself in her shoes, I probably wouldn't be all that interested in doing much housework either. They did find dirty laundry tossed all over the floor and around the washer and dryer, which were located in the garage. Investigators said that you pretty much couldn't walk anywhere around the machines without stepping all over clothing. And seriously, dreamers, for some of you, doesn't me just saying that there were dirty clothes all over the ground getting stepped on in the garage give you anxiety? It's like, geez, woman, get at least a hamper or two. But the interesting thing about this whole situation was that inside the washing machine were a couple of sleeping bags. So it made the officers wonder why the priority was to wash the sleeping bags, but not your children's clothing, when it obviously hadn't been done in days, if not a week or more. So there goes the worried and grieving wife theory, right? 
she's okay enough to wash sleeping bags, but not anybody's clothing? Okay. It just didn't really make sense. And then in the master bedroom of the home, on a nightstand in a bowl, investigators discovered both Chris's wallet and his cell phone. When Trisha was first interviewed about this whole mess, when Chris was still missing, she said that those items were with him. When they asked her about it, she said that she thought that he had brought those things with him. Well, he didn't, and they were right there in plain sight next to her bed. That right there caused more red flags to go up. I mean, I almost never go anywhere without my wallet and my phone, and I assume it's pretty much the same for everybody. These days, and even back in 2012, it's hard to do anything without those things. Even camping, especially for emergencies, these items are essential. Trisha explained that she didn't think that Chris had his wallet and phone, but it was later after speaking to investigators that her daughter, their three-year-old, apparently found them inside their car. Even so, I still think Chris would have retrieved those items to keep with him before Trisha and Amber left him at the campsite. Now granted, he was drinking, and it could have been that he forgot about it when the women left, but here's the thing. Trisha apparently had enough forethought, supposedly, to leave her gun behind for protection, right? In the case of an emergency. So if that was the case, then why wouldn't she have that same forethought to make sure that Chris had his phone and his wallet with him too? In the case of an emergency. A phone is just as important as a gun if an emergency comes up, if not more so, because more of us have phones than guns on a daily basis, right? There were a couple of things that investigators found or didn't find that did corroborate Trisha's story. They found the Jack in the Box receipt and it had a timestamp that lined up with both her and Amber's stories. They also searched the vehicle that they took up to the campsite and found no trace evidence, no blood, nothing that indicated anyone was inside the vehicle that had been involved in anything violent. In the end, they ended up seizing all of the electronic devices in both Trisha and Amber's homes, including computers and cell phones. They were going to have those items analyzed by a forensic specialist to see if there was anything in there that indicated anyone wanted to harm Chris. Shortly after the search, Chris's dad came up to Medford from Southern California to help make funeral arrangements for his son. And as far as he could tell, his daughter-in-law appeared to be very saddened by the loss of her husband, the father to her children. They cried together as they both shared how much they missed Chris. As for the seized electronics, the analysis of activity on the family computer from Trisha's house revealed that somebody was getting busy going on dating websites, particularly those with people interested in meeting others wanting to engage in bondage-type fetish activities. It probably isn't that big of a mystery for those of you listening that it was Trisha visiting those sites and signing up for those dating services. It did raise more red flags, not necessarily because of the types of dating sites that she was on, but just due to the fact that Trisha had indicated that her marriage to Chris was in good standing, that they were working through some problems they had recently reconciled, and the revelation that she was on active dating sites kind of contradicted that. It also gave detectives pause, because as far as 
they could see in their investigation thus far, Chris was a very well-liked young man. There didn't seem to be anyone who wanted to do him harm. The fact that his wife was on active dating sites shifted the focus. When looking for a person who would want to harm Chris, investigators were also looking for a reason for it, a motive for him to be dead. And at the time, at the beginning of the investigation, they really didn't find much. He worked hard. He had two jobs. Investigators weren't quite clear as to what anyone had to gain financially or otherwise from Chris's death. But by all accounts, everyone who knew Chris really didn't think that there was anyone who would want him dead. As they continued to dig into this case, investigators found that Chris and Trisha did have some troubles in their marriage in the year or so leading up to that fateful camping trip. There had come a time when Trisha, Chris, and the kids moved to Texas. I believe this involved Trisha having briefly enlisted in the army. I'll go into a little bit more detail about that a little bit later on, but her enlistment didn't last long, just a few months. At some point, Trisha had become dissatisfied in the marriage. She packed herself up and her kids and returned to Medford. And she did it without telling Chris anything at all. She just packed up one day while Chris was at work and left. He was blindsided by it all. He never saw it coming. She didn't even leave a note. According to Chris's friends, they didn't even discuss separating like that. She just up and left. And there he was, all the way over in Texas, left to take care of the rent and bills on his own. The whole thing devastated Chris. And when he called up his dad to tell him what had happened, his dad had never known his son to have been so upset, especially the idea of being so far away from the children really got to him. So once his lease was up, Chris decided to follow Trisha and move back to Medford as well. Remember, Chris had come from a broken family, so he was pretty resolute when it came to keeping his own family together. And his father readily admitted that the divorce from his mother was very, very acrimonious. And it had started when Chris was still an infant. So the fighting and the bitterness had carried on between his parents for many, many years, long after the divorce was finalized. The fighting between Chris's mom and dad deeply affected him. So he was determined to make it work between himself and Trisha. His dad tried talking him out of going back to Medford and trying to reconcile with her, but Chris had already made up his mind. He moved to a place nearby in Medford, if for nothing else, to be close to his children. But Chris ended up having to support Trisha and the kids and all of her bills, despite her desire to leave him. Trisha was attending college and Chris was footing the bill for all of that, tuition, books, everything. On top of his own bills and child support, Chris was barely making ends meet. But it's what he wanted. He wanted his family together. And now we can kind of see and have a little bit more of an understanding why this was a man who would even resort to selling his blood to ensure that his family was taken care of. The investigation soon revealed that during their separation, both Trisha and Chris had started new relationships. And for Chris, the woman that he met and started dating, the things between them had gotten pretty serious. Her name was Samantha, and she fell pretty hard and fast for Chris. 
In fact, in February of 2012, she popped the question, giving him a ring made of titanium, asking him to be her husband. She knew that he had things to sort out with his then estranged wife, but she wanted him to know that when he was ready to move on, she wanted to be the next Mrs. Chris McCollum. At first, Chris was taken aback, not really sure if this was really a marriage proposal. But when Samantha confirmed that indeed it was, Chris accepted. Trisha knew of Samantha. She knew that they were engaged to be married, and she seemed to be okay with it. After all, she was the one who wanted out of the marriage. If it did bother her in any way, Trisha never expressed those feelings to Samantha, and as far as Samantha could tell, Trisha was all good with her relationship with Chris. In fact, in an interview on Investigation Discovery, Samantha said that when they talked, it was like they were friends. Not the best of friends, but friends nonetheless. Samantha sensed no jealousy or resentment towards her being with Chris at all. But based on the things that I've described up to this point, it is clear that Chris isn't quite over his marriage to Trisha. He did have some issues that he needed to work through, and Samantha could clearly see that. So sadly, the engagement only lasted a few months, as Samantha could see that Chris needed time to sort through what he really wanted. To work out his marriage and save his family, or to let it go and move forward with Samantha. Samantha was really wanting to protect her own feelings, and the last thing she wanted was to be completely and fully invested in Chris over the course of months, possibly even years, only for Chris to decide to go back to Trisha. She wanted to spare herself the grief and the heartache, so she pulled the plug on their relationship until Chris sorted things out with his wife. Investigators also found that Trisha was dating. As I said, she had been on various dating sites, but there was one man in particular that she was seeing on a regular basis. But not only was she seeing this one person, she was still actively looking for others to date. And in the examinations of Trisha's online activities, investigators were able to ascertain that Trisha was one very unhappily married woman that she did not want to be married to Chris anymore, that he bored her, he didn't satisfy her, that she didn't love him. In fact, the more I got into the story, I started to feel like the woman just downright hated him. In addition to the fetish sites, she was also on sugar daddy sites. So on top of everything else, she clearly wasn't happy with the jobs that Chris had and the wages that he was earning. She wanted to be taken care of. She wanted a man with means. However, it did seem like Trisha was mostly entertained by the fetish and bondage sites. She was a submissive in search of a dominant. Eventually, she began dating a man that she met on one of these sites named Jeremiah Hills. When investigators spoke to Jeremiah, he confirmed that he was in a dominant, submissive sexual relationship with Trisha, that they met on one of those dating sites, and that Trisha being submissive to him was a major part of the dynamics of their relationship. And whenever she was with him or around him, Trisha was required to wear a collar. And Trisha made no effort to hide any of this from Chris. She was open about it, 
frequently wearing that collar even when Jeremiah wasn't around. While Chris may or may not have had an issue with Trisha moving on with another man, seeing as he had moved on with another woman, or was at least contemplating it, he had a big, huge problem with the collar. The thought of their children seeing their mother wearing that around the house concerned him. In fact, it made him quite angry, especially because Trisha seemed to not really be all that concerned whether or not she had it on. He just didn't want the children being around that sort of stuff. Chris seemed to be under the impression that Trisha was doing this at Jeremiah's behest, and it bothered him because he felt it wasn't right for this guy to be treating the mother of his children in that way. And I don't know the ins and outs of Trisha's relationship with Jeremiah, obviously, but as far as my understanding of a BDSM relationship is, one of the most important aspects of it is for things to be safe and consensual. And to me, Trisha is a woman who clearly knows what she wants and doesn't want. The fact that she walked out on her husband and moved halfway across the country to get away from him, it, she doesn't really strike me as a woman who's being forced into doing anything that she doesn't want to do, regardless of her role as the submissive in this relationship with Jeremiah. But at the end of the day, Chris wanted to be back with Trisha. He wanted to work out their problems and he wanted his family intact. So after dating other people for about six months or so, close to the middle of 2012, Trisha and Chris decided to give their marriage another try. And by the beginning of September of that year, they moved back in together. Chris still had it in his mind that he would be able to have his marriage and family intact the way that he had always wanted it all along. He was determined to do it differently than his parents had. It was something that he had spent many years searching for. And as it would turn out, it would be the kind of relationship that Chris would never really be able to achieve in life. Chris and Samantha did stay in touch after they broke up and he reconciled with his wife. In fact, they stayed close. They talked, they texted, they shared. And whenever Samantha would check in on how his relationship was going with Trisha, it never really seemed to be going all that well. In fact, Chris confided in Samantha that he didn't feel like they were even really in a marriage anymore, or at least what he expected his marriage to feel like. He told her that it seemed like Trisha didn't want him anywhere near her or even in the house. When investigators found out this new information from Samantha, the next place they decided to look a bit deeper was into that relationship that Trisha had with Jeremiah Hills, the man that she met on that dating site. They wanted to know a little bit more about him and the possibility that he may be involved with what happened to Chris. After all, Chris and Trisha decided to reconcile and move back just two months prior to his murder. Perhaps Jeremiah left out in the cold, decided that the only way to get Trisha back was to get rid of Chris. When investigators interviewed Jeremiah, he was forthcoming about the type of relationship that he had with Trisha, that they had met on a BDSM website, that they began a friendship which evolved into a submissive dominant sexual relationship with him being the dominant. So if he was the kind of person who had a desire to be in control over Trisha, and then she up and goes back to her husband, 
Could that have possibly led to him wanting to find a way to regain control over Tricia? And his way of doing that was attacking Chris when he was alone and vulnerable at that campsite? That's possible, but it also meant that he would have had to have known about the camping trip in the first place, which meant that somebody had to have told him, which meant that somebody could have possibly been conspiring with him. However, when he was asked about what he knew about Chris's murder, Jeremiah was adamant that he knew nothing about it. However, he did tell them about a very troubling conversation that he had with Trisha just before she reconciled with Chris in September. Jeremiah admitted that Trisha approached him and asked him if he would be willing to kill Chris or she wanted to know if he knew somebody who would. The investigators found Jeremiah to be genuine and believable. They just didn't think that he would volunteer that type of information if he was involved in the murder himself. It was possible that he was trying to get the police attention off of himself and cast it onto Trisha instead. But when they investigated Jeremiah's alibi, it was solid. That Friday evening, when Chris, Trisha, and Amber went camping, Jeremiah was at work. And another thing that pretty much eliminated him as a suspect was the fact that he didn't drive and he didn't even own a car. And there was no other indication or evidence that pointed to Jeremiah having any involvement in Chris's murder. So he was quickly eliminated as a suspect. But the information that he provided about Trisha asking him if he would murder Chris or if he knew someone who would redirected the investigation back on to Trisha. So investigators started going back over everything Trisha provided them in her statements about that night that she and Chris went camping. Looking at this with that new information, they began to see some inconsistencies and things that didn't really make sense or line up with her story. One of the most glaring things about Trisha's version of what happened the night that Chris was killed is that her story just wasn't all that believable. The way that she described the campsite about her leaving to go home only to come back the next day to find everything gone because everything wasn't gone. There was a glove there that was clearly visible. The tent poles were in the fire pit. The bag that the tent poles and stakes were stored in were still there. They were all visible out in the open. There were inconsistencies in how she described the whole scene versus the way that investigators ultimately found it. Trisha claimed that she had gone back to the campsite early the next morning to rejoin Chris and that when she got there, he and everything he had with him was gone. So investigators decided to pull surveillance video from one specific camera that was pointed directly at a road Trisha would have had to have taken if she had gone back to the campsite that morning, and they found that her vehicle never passed by that camera that morning. Having eliminated other potential possibilities, including Chris's murder being linked to Mr. Huey Houston's murder, investigators were finding that everything that they looked at and all the leads that they were following were taking them right back to Trisha, which meant that there was a very strong possibility that her stepsister, Amber, was involved, or at the very least, in the know. After all, Amber told detectives that she was with Trisha and Chris the entire time that they were camping, and then she went with Trisha when they decided to leave the campsite. If that was the case, then it was not possible for Trisha to have been the one to kill Chris and for Amber to not know about it or to potentially be directly involved with it. No matter what investigators found, 
they were unable to eliminate either Trisha or Amber as suspects. As for Chris's dad, Mike, he had always had it in the back of his mind that his daughter-in-law may have been the one to murder his son, but he had a very strong desire for that to not be the case because of how devastated his grandchildren would be to not only have lost their dad so violently, but to have to come to terms with the fact that it was their mother that was behind it. Mike wanted very badly for Trisha to not have been the one, but he thought it. It was always there from the moment he found out his son was dead. Investigators finally had enough probable cause to obtain arrest warrants for both Trisha and Amber for Chris's murder. Trisha was arrested on December 7, 2012, 16 days after the tent with Chris's body was discovered by searchers. Amber was arrested that same day while she was at the grocery store. They were brought down to the station and placed in separate interrogation rooms. It is quickly decided by the detectives that Amber appeared to be the much weaker one of the two, as she had become quite emotional from the moment she was taken into custody, in contrast to her stepsister, Trisha, who was very stoic and displayed absolutely no emotion. To them, it looked like that this was a young woman on the verge of breaking. They could see that Amber was the type of person who could easily be pushed around and bossed by Trisha. And when Trisha came up with a plan, Amber would simply follow along. So investigators wanted to try and get Amber to be the one to spill the beans and their best and only way to make sure that they would get the whole story was to cut her a deal from the start. So, Dreamers, personally, I think the detectives kind of played into Amber's fear and ignorance because what they said to her before she admitted to anything was that they had with them a piece of paper from the district attorney's office that was a letter of immunity. That's what they called it. Now, to me, immunity means exactly what it's supposed to mean, immunity from prosecution. I told you a moment ago that they were going to offer her a deal. And I think that that would have been a much more accurate way of putting it when it came to what they were going to have on the table for her. She wasn't going to get immunity, but they told her that that's what it was. And I think that this is where people advocating for themselves versus asking for an attorney comes back to bite them in the butt. Because I think... If Amber had asked for an attorney, she may very well have been able to get a full immunity deal for her cooperation. In looking at that interrogation video, it appears that Amber is very desperate. And I'm sure she is very, very desperate to be able to walk out of that room at the end of that conversation and go home. So I think that she's thinking that if she cooperates now and signs the so-called letter of immunity, that will be her ticket home. If she asks for an attorney, then the questioning will stop. The investigator will withdraw that also coveted immunity. She gets arrested and she has to wait in the county jail until she sees the judge and gets bail and then gets a public defender unless she's able to hire her own attorney. And if she's able to hire her own attorney, it increases her chances of that attorney being able to ultimately work out that full immunity deal for her, and then she'd be able to go free. 
but nobody wants to spend one single second in the county lockup, and Amber wants immediacy here. She does not want this to go on any longer. She does not want to be arrested. She does not want to sit in the county jail. And when the officer said the word immunity, she bites. But like I said, it isn't full immunity, and there's no denying that Amber was involved here in this crime. The deal that was offered was for her guilty plea to accessory after the fact and truthful testimony about what happened the night that Chris was murdered and that she didn't have anything to do with the actual killing herself and the maximum she would receive is a sentence of three years in prison. She was then told that if she did not want to take the deal, then she was going to be arrested for first degree murder and she would be going down with her stepsister. I honestly think that Amber thought she was going to go home that day if she signed that deal because of the word immunity. Because if she understood that she was going to go to jail and she wouldn't be going anywhere anytime soon, she may very well have asked for an attorney and stopped the questioning before she signed anything. But the officer isn't going to tell her that, you know. He told her that the immunity offer is meant for her to help herself. But we all know by now that the police who are interrogating a suspect are not in the business of helping anyone but their case. I'm not saying that Amber deserved full immunity or anybody's help. All I'm doing is reiterating the notion that the best thing to do is to get an attorney, especially one that does not work for the county if possible. Amber did accept the deal that this officer framed as immunity, signed it, and immediately stated to him, I didn't do it. The officer asked her who did. And by this time, Amber was sobbing so hard, she was unable to bring herself to say it. So he prompted her again. Was it Trisha? She answered, yes. What did she do? She shot him. How many times? I didn't count. I didn't count. How many times do you think? A couple of clips. A couple of clips? Are you talking about gun clips? Yes. Okay. All right. What did she do with him? Gunned the campground. Gunned the campground? Where was Chris at the time? In the tent. He was in the tent? Yes. And with that, police have made their case and Amber becomes their star witness. And in the other interrogation room sat Trisha, stone-faced and silent, refusing to speak to investigators. Again, a contrast to her very emotional stepsister in the other room confessing to everything. The following information came from the court documents related to this case. On November 19, 2012, Trisha McCollum reported Chris missing to the Jackson County Sheriff's Department. She told them that she had not seen Chris since three days earlier on the 16th when she left him at a campsite near Applegate Lake over the California border. She said that on Saturday the 17th, it was Chris's birthday, he was turning 34, and that they had gone there to celebrate, but she decided to go home early on the first night because it was cold and she wasn't feeling well. Chris wanted to continue with the camping trip as planned, so she left and was to return the next morning to pick him up. Trisha left Chris there with a tent, a sleeping bag, food, water, his wallet, his phone, and her 40 caliber handgun with two full magazines of ammunition. Trisha stated that she arrived back at the campsite around 10 a.m. the next morning, 
only to find that all of the camping gear had been packed up and Chris was gone. Investigators contacted both of Chris's places of work to see if he had shown up that Monday, and both of his managers stated that they had not heard from him. Chris's friends and family were also contacted, but still, nobody had seen or spoken to Chris. An all-points bulletin was sent out seeking information about Chris's whereabouts. Investigators learned early on that it was not uncommon for Chris to have a practice of disappearing when he was angry or frustrated or if he just needed a break from things. Deputies went out to the campsite that same day, but by the time they got there, it was getting dark and there was no sign of Chris. They decided to come back the next morning to resume the search. On the morning of Tuesday, November 20th, Trisha provided investigators with more specific directions and details of the campsite. It was also that morning that Trisha revealed for the first time that she and Chris were not alone at the campsite, that her stepsister Amber had gone with them. Investigators returned to the location Trisha indicated that they had set up camp, and one of the searchers, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, discovered the rolled-up tent down the embankment. When they were able to take a closer look at it, something was inside that was weighing that tent down. Later on, it was determined that it was Chris's body inside the tent, along with some clothing, camping gear, tent poles, and spent shell casings. There were also metal tent stakes strewn about the campsite and some tent stakes in the fire pit. Later that same evening, the day that Chris's body was discovered, Trisha was interviewed at her home. She explained that she, Amber, and Chris had gone camping. She knew Amber because Amber's mother and Trisha's father had been married for about 20 years and they became very close. Trisha stated that on November 16th, she and Chris ran a few errands, they picked up Amber, and they stopped at the grocery store on their way to the campsite. Trisha purchased a bottle of alcohol for each of them. They arrived at the campsite at approximately 2 p.m. the afternoon. They walked to a nearby waterfall. When they returned to the campsite, they ate sandwiches, they drank alcohol, they went inside the tent to get warm. Later that evening, Trisha and Amber decided to leave because it was cold. Trisha said that she left her loaded handgun and one more magazine clip with Chris when she left. She and Amber stopped at the jack-in-the-box on their way home to get some dinner. Trisha said that when they returned to the campsite early the next morning around 10 a.m., there was nothing there. When she was asked about the fire pit, Trisha said that she remembered looking at it, but she did not mention seeing any tent poles or stakes in the pit or around the campsite. When she was asked why they did not get to the campsite until 10 a.m., Trisha said that she did not have a clock next to her bed and that she was guessing. She also did not remember that she told officers when she first reported Chris missing that she returned to the campsite just after dawn. So there was another inconsistency they found in her story. A few days later, when a search warrant was executed at Trisha's home, officers found an alarm clock right next to her bed. Trisha also turned over an empty gun case, a full magazine, and a sample box of ammunition for the gun that she said she left with Chris. On Wednesday, November 21st, Trisha was informed by officers that their tent had been found near the campsite and that they believed there to be a body inside. Trisha's response was that it could not be Chris because he knew self-defense. 
On that evening, investigators informed Trisha and Amber that Chris was inside the tent and that he suffered a violent death and that they believed Trisha and Amber were involved. When they told Trisha that, her reaction was detached and she did not express very much surprise. One of the officers mentioned a gun or some other instrument, but wasn't specific with Trisha as to how Chris died. Trisha asked if he was attacked by an animal, and she said that she told Amber that Chris could have been attacked by an animal that rolled up inside the tent with him. Which sounds just stupid to me, and we know that she didn't say that to Amber because we know what really happened up there. One of the officers pointed out to Trisha that nobody ever said anything about Chris's body being rolled up inside the tent. All they said was that they found the tent and Chris was inside of it. But later on during that officer's testimony, he was unable to definitively rule out that Trisha found out that information from another source. Investigators questioned Trisha about her relationship with Chris. She told him that Chris had moved into her home on September 7th. She said that they were working on their relationship and doing what they needed to do to make it work. She said that they argued, but there was never any physical violence. She said that they both dated other people while they were separated, and she mentioned Jeremiah Hills. She told officers that Chris did not like Jeremiah and had gotten into an argument with him before he moved back in with her. Trisha stated that she had no further physical contact with Jeremiah after Chris moved back in and that Jeremiah was unaware of the camping trip that they went on. Jeremiah stated in his testimony that he met Trisha in June of 2012 while she was separated from Chris and they began a sexual relationship. Approximately six weeks prior to Chris moving back in with Trisha, Jeremiah overheard an argument between the two of them. After the argument, Chris left, at which point Trisha told Jeremiah that things would be better off without Chris around. When Jeremiah was asked if she used those exact words when she said that, Jeremiah stated that he believed that she said more specifically that things would be better off if Chris was dead. During that same conversation, Trisha told Jeremiah that he probably knew people who could get rid of Chris. He stated that he never asked anybody to kill Chris on Trisha's behalf. At some point, Trisha mentioned to Jeremiah that Chris had a life insurance policy. Jeremiah never mentioned this to law enforcement officers interviewing him prior to Trisha's arrest and all of the legal proceedings that ensued because he forgot about it. Trisha told Jeremiah that Chris was trying to force his way back into her life by threatening to stop paying child support so she would lose her home. She said that she let Chris move back into the house because she needed help paying rent and she wanted to return to school. On the night of Chris's murder, Jeremiah was at work from 5 p.m. to 10.30 p.m. and he did not own a vehicle. Okay, so one of the problems detectives had throughout the duration of their investigation into Chris's murder is that they lacked a clear motive. They did not find out about the life insurance policy until the trial. So if they had known that information, it is likely that Amber may not have ever been given any kind of deal because their main reason why they felt like they needed her to turn state's evidence was because they weren't going to be able to tell a jury a solid reason why Trisha wanted Chris dead. He had just moved back into the home and it appeared that they were working through their marital problems and Trisha had stopped seeing Jeremiah. Even though they technically did not need to prove a motive, 
They felt like it severely crippled their case against Trisha because they couldn't find one that made sense. However, Dreamers, I'm not 100% sure the insurance money was Trisha's only motive. It became pretty clear to me the more I read into this case that Trisha just really hated her husband and the poor guy was just blindly in love with this woman for some reason. I just have absolutely no clue what he saw in her because to me, she had been nothing but a bitch to him. And on top of that, it's not like she's some stunningly beautiful woman that Chris could never imagine himself being with in his wildest fantasies. Not that beauty is that important, but I mean, she's kind of just blah and doesn't even really make up for it in other ways, you know? I'll post pictures and pictures from the campsite. And when you see them, you're going to be like, damn, this is what Chris was mad crazy in love with. Okay. So Amber provided her statement and the details of what happened and eventually testimony at trial. She said that she had known Trisha since childhood and they were like sisters growing up. In 2011, Trisha briefly joined the army but was medically discharged after only a few months. After she left the army, she moved back to Medford, Oregon from San Antonio, Texas, where she had left Chris behind. Trisha moved in with her mom and began receiving government benefits. She said that Trisha told her that she and Chris had separated and that she wanted to stay separated from him, but Chris had followed her to Medford once the lease on their place in San Antonio was up because he wanted to work things out. Amber stated that Trisha was infuriated that Chris had moved back to Medford and that she had found herself stuck in this situation with him. At the beginning of September, Trisha moved out of her mother's house and into her own place. She paid the rent with her government benefits and money that she received from Chris. Amber stated that Chris was very much in love with Trisha and treated her very well, that he worked two jobs to support her children, he gave Trisha money whenever she asked for it, and that Chris would pretty much do anything to make Trisha happy. A week after Trisha moved into her own place, Chris moved in with her. But Trisha had told Amber that she did not want Chris moving in, she didn't want him around, and she was basically forced to make a deal with the devil because she couldn't afford the place on her own. It was that same month, September of 2012, that Trisha first told Amber that she wanted Chris dead. The first time it came up, Amber was at her in-law's house, and Trisha had come over with her kids so that the children could play together. As the kids were out in the backyard, Trisha leaned in close and whispered to Amber that she wanted to kill her husband. Trisha continued to have these conversations with Amber and discussed details of how she wanted it done and that she wanted it to look like an accident. Trisha asked Amber if she had any ideas for a good spot to make it happen and that's when Amber mentioned the campsite in Applegate. A couple of weeks later, the two of them drove out there to check it out. They walked around the campsite and that's when Trisha spotted a rocky area on the other side of the creek that she said would be a good place for an accident to happen. Trisha's plan was to get Chris drunk, point to something, have him lean over and then fall onto the rocks. A week later, Amber and her ex-husband's cousin, also named Chris but with a K, they went to go set up camp at the campsite. The plan was for Trisha and Chris to arrive later that night and for Chris with a K to leave once they arrived. And then Trisha would kill Chris. 
However, Trisha and Chris failed to show up, so Amber and Chris with a K packed up and left. Later on, Trisha told Amber that they were unable to find a babysitter for the kids. Chris with a K was not aware of the plan to kill Chris and had no part in it. A few days before Chris was murdered, Trisha told Amber of a new plan that she had come up with. Trisha would have Chris tie a rope around himself to ostensibly help Trisha get across the river above the waterfall. Then Trisha would yank on the rope really hard and cause Chris to fall into the waterfall. Trisha mentioned to Amber that Chris did have life insurance, so she hoped that if Chris's death appeared to be accidental, that she and her children would be taken care of. On Friday, November 16, 2012, Trisha and Chris picked up Amber around 12.30 that afternoon in Trisha's car. They stopped to buy a few things and then arrived at the campsite about two hours later. They pitched the tent, they started drinking, and they began looking for firewood. At some point, Chris and Trisha posed for pictures that Amber took. They are very loving pictures of the two of them standing around in nature, holding one another, kissing, embracing. Chris thinking that here they're in love and working things out, celebrating his birthday. And all the while, here's Trisha with a plan in her mind to murder Chris and go home and on with her life without him. I'll post the pictures and I'm pretty sure they're going to make you feel some kind of way. Amber and Trisha drank watered-down alcohol while they plied Chris with lots of booze. And then they went down to the river to try and carry out that plan. They tied a rope to a tree, and Chris crossed the river with the rope tied around him. When Chris was coming back across the river, Trisha held on to the cord, and Chris yelled at her to let it go. Amber also had a hold of the cord, but she did let it go and backed up. Trisha again grabbed the cord and began pulling. Chris fell, but he was able to recover and get back onto his feet. He told Trisha to let go, and at that point he finished crossing the river. When he got out, he was pretty upset, and he even said, What are you two doing? You guys could have killed me. But the whole ordeal didn't shake him up enough to give him pause to think about what was really going on there. But you know, who thinks that? He and his wife just moved back in. He was under the impression that they were going to work things out, that this was a special trip for his birthday. Who thinks that their wife is plotting with her sister to cause him harm, especially on his own birthday trip? Unfortunately, when that attempt to murder Chris didn't work, it was a moment in time when any one of them could have said, okay, this isn't right, and put a stop to the whole entire thing. I know why Chris didn't because he didn't see it coming. I know why Trisha didn't. She was pretty bound and determined to get Chris to somehow meet his demise. But the one thing I'll never quite understand is why Amber didn't put an end to all this, or why she even went along with it in the first place. It wasn't like Trisha was telling her lies about why she wanted Chris dead. She wasn't accusing him of abusing her or the children. She just said she wanted him gone and she hoped for the insurance payout. Not that there was anything Trisha could have told Amber for her to be like, okay, that sounds like justification for murder, but there wasn't even that, you know? I don't get why Amber so readily went along. She had a home, her husband, her children. Why in the world would she risk all of that for not even her real sister's selfishness and greed? I just don't get it. 
So after the whole fall into the river and over the waterfall plan failed, they all went inside the tent to have sandwiches for dinner. Amber and Trisha were going to go to sleep on cots and Chris was in his sleeping bag on top of some sleeping pads. He was wearing his boxers and a t-shirt when he fell asleep and it was pretty early. It was around 6.30 or 7 that evening. The women had spent that afternoon encouraging him to keep drinking while they were sipping watered down vodka. From there, Amber and Trisha communicated with one another by way of texting each other on Amber's phone. One of them would enter a text message and then pass the phone to the other who would read it, delete it, and then enter her own reply. In those back and forth text messages, Trisha was trying to come up with other ideas of how to murder Chris, and according to Amber's testimony, her messages were ones that were trying to discourage Trisha from moving forward with a plan and trying to just get her to drop it. Eventually, once they knew Chris was sound asleep, they went to the vehicle to sit in there and talk. Amber told Trisha that she couldn't do it and that she wouldn't do it. Trisha told Amber in no uncertain terms, Chris is not going to come home with me. And that's when she told Amber that she was going to shoot him. So from there, they quietly took everything that Chris wasn't using out of the tent and packed those items back into the car. Trisha then got her gun out of the trunk and she went and stood on the outside of the tent and shot at Chris through the doorway. Amber looked on as Trisha emptied the magazine clip that was loaded into the gun. Trisha then returned to the car and asked Amber to hand her the second clip. Amber gave it to her, thinking that Trisha was going to get rid of it. But instead, Trisha loaded the clip into the gun, went inside the tent, and from there, Amber heard more gunshots. Trisha came back to the car and told Amber that she needed her help. Amber told her that she couldn't that she didn't want to, but Trisha was persistent until Amber finally gave in and agreed to help. They took the tent and rolled Chris up into it. Amber broke down the tent poles and put some of them into the fire pit with the tent stakes. Some of the tent poles were still wrapped in the tent and some of them she just threw across the campsite. Once Chris was wrapped inside, they tied a cord around him and tried to put him into the trunk of the car but he was too heavy. So they pushed him over the edge of the embankment, hoping that it would go all the way down to the river and he would be swept away. Trisha then took Chris's pants, phone, and his wallet and his jacket. She tossed the gun and the clips into the waterfall. Amber picked up some of the shell casings and tossed them down towards the river too. They then drove away and headed to Trisha's house. They stopped at a jack-in-the-box around 12.30 in the morning in an effort to try and establish an alibi. They agreed that they would then wait 24 hours before reporting Chris missing. Trisha was the one who came up with the story that they left the campsite because they were cold. There were two occasions during her interviews with investigators that Amber falsely told them that she and Trisha returned to the campsite the following morning to look for Chris. They did not return to the campsite, but instead they slept in, they cleaned out the car, and they washed the clothes that they were wearing in order to remove any blood. They took Chris's jacket and hiking boots to a thrift store in Medford, and they threw the roll of cord and Trisha's tennis shoes into a trash can at a nearby high school. Chris's jacket was later recovered from that thrift store by investigators. 
Amber also lied when she told investigators that she and Trisha were drinking heavily. They were, in fact, drinking diluted alcohol. Amber also lied when she told them that they left the campsite because they were cold and that Chris had helped them pack up the car when they left. It was on December 7th after signing the plea agreement, which provided in part that Amber would not be prosecuted for murder as long as she provided helpful and truthful testimony regarding the crime and that she did not actually carry out the killing. Amber pleaded guilty to being an accessory after the fact and was sentenced to 16 months in jail. She served eight months after time served and good behavior and received no probation. The medical examiner testified that Chris's body was found inside a sleeping bag, wrapped inside a tent, along with some camping gear and personal items. He was wearing a t-shirt and boxer shorts. The firearm was not found, but several empty shell casings and two unspent bullets were recovered from inside the sleeping bag. Chris had been shot eight or nine times and had a total of 25 bullet type injuries to his body, though I'm not completely sure exactly what that meant. What I assume that meant is if one bullet may have penetrated Chris's body more than once, and also bullets can ricochet off the ground and multiple injuries can be caused by a single bullet. So if she emptied two magazines using her handgun pointed to the ground, she could have fired at him at least two dozen times, possibly even more. There seemed to be a lot of shell casings in both the sleeping bag and in the tent, also on the ground outside the tent, and Amber did toss some into the river as well. Anyway, the wounds were consistent with Chris having been shot while he was lying on the ground. Amber had taken authorities to the campsite and she pinpointed the exact spot where Chris was laying when he was shot. The forensics team did recover three more bullets that were in the ground in that spot. The bullets were compared to the box of ammunition that Trisha had turned over to police the day she reported him missing and the bullets retrieved from Chris's body and they were consistent in shape, coloration, and diameter, as were the bullets found in the ground. They were the same caliber, same line, same lands and grooves. The medical examiner could not determine the exact date and time of death, but he did say that there wasn't anything inconsistent with the opinion that Chris had died on either November 16th or 17th, and it was the evening of the 16th that Amber said Chris was shot. Officially, Chris is listed as having died on November 20th, which is the day his body was confirmed to be inside that tent. Chris's 34th birthday was on November 17th. Trisha's defense attorney asserted that neither she nor Amber were at the campsite when Chris was shot, that Amber's testimony is all lies, and that neither Amber nor Trisha's ex-boyfriend, Jeremiah Hills, were credible witnesses. Trisha's attorney said that her own conduct supported her innocence that there was no evidence connecting Trisha to Chris's killing and that any inconsistencies in Trisha's various statements to law enforcement could be attributed to misunderstandings. The defense called no witnesses to testify and Trisha did not testify on her own behalf. Her trial took place in 2013 in Siskiyou County. Ultimately, a jury convicted Trisha of first-degree murder and she was sentenced to 50 years to life in prison. At her sentencing hearing, Trisha called Amber a liar that fooled everyone. 
Trisha maintained her innocence, insisting that she did not kill her husband. She even had the nerve to refer to herself as another victim of this crime. Chris's family, while satisfied with Trisha's sentence, were very unhappy with the slap on the wrist that Amber received for her role in all of this. I would agree that she did get the sweetest of sweetheart deals, but if investigators were that pessimistic about their chances of getting a conviction for either one of them, I figured that they did what they thought they needed to do, even if that meant giving Amber the deal of a lifetime. I think that Amber could have held out for full immunity because it didn't seem like investigators had very much confidence in the case that they had against either one of them, but Amber didn't know that and she was unwilling to take her chances and she chose to roll over on her stepsister. I do think eight months wasn't enough. However, Amber did seem to be a very weak person who, for whatever reason, was unable to say no to Trisha. I still don't understand why she risked her freedom like that. But the fact remains, she caved in every step of the way in this planning. And I'm not 100% sure, even if she tried harder to stop Trisha herself, that she would have been able to. At the same time, she never went to the police either. The planning went on for two months. She could have done it. She could have gone to police and then they would work to get some incriminating statements from Trisha on audio and video recordings. Trisha would have then been arrested for trying to conspire to commit first degree murder. Amber would have gotten off completely and Chris would be alive today with his daughter. But Amber didn't do that. She sat by idly for two months and planned out Chris's murder with Trisha instead and only got eight months for it. Justice was ultimately served, though in many people's opinions, not as well as it should have been. Okay, dreamers, that is it for the tale of the last camping trip, the killing of Chris McCollum. Don't forget to follow California Dreaming on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Sign up for Patreon for all the exclusive content starting at just $1 a month. I am going back to California for Thanksgiving, but there should not be very many interruptions, if any, when it comes to getting your episodes during the holidays. You know Miss Roseanne here doesn't believe in seasons, breaks, or consistency. You just wake up every day and there might be a new episode for you, and there might not be. You never know because that's how we do it. I hope everybody here in the United States who celebrates Thanksgiving has a wonderful holiday. And if you don't, I hope you have a wonderful Thursday. I am thankful for all of you and all of your love and all of your support throughout the years. And I am looking forward to many, many more. I love you all. And until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>